podcast series entitled The Bible in Seven Passages. As we have done in the past, we will start off the same way today to remind everyone that this lesson was developed by a brother in Christ by the name of Mike Mazzalango. And in developing this process, this particular lesson, I should say, he wanted to start us out with a scenario. He wanted us to think of the world or the future world where the Bible is no longer accessible and believers have to memorize seven passages that would help them maintain their faith until Christ Jesus returns. So this series examines these seven passages and it does so in an attempt to summarize the information that's contained in all 66 books in those seven passages. So before we get started, would you join me in prayer? Our blessed Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you, Father, for loving us. Heavenly Father, we we are so blessed in where we are at this particular time, Father, due to the things that are going on with the weather in the Florida area, Father. We pray for those, not just the sisters, the brothers down there, for all of those who are in the past, the path of that that hurricane, Father, that they would have taken the advice of their leadership and moved to higher ground. But for those who didn't and weren't able to, Father, we ask that you continue to be with them and protect them. Heavenly Father, we as a congregation here, uh, we are in the process of transitioning over to what you might be considered more severe weather ourselves if we're transitioning to the times of, of cooler weather and snow. Father, we pray that we too would be mindful of our surroundings and our circumstances, Father, that we would not ever regardless of what's going on around us, lose sight of who we are as children of God. Heavenly Father, we pray that these lessons that we're bringing here, Father, that we never have to experience the scenario that is before us, Father, but just let us have a mindset of who you are and the promises that you've made, promises that were necessary because of disobedience on behalf of mankind after receiving such wonderful promises. Father, we thank you for and thank you for in Christ Jesus' most holy name. Amen. So in today's lesson, what we're going to review is three things. Judgment, consequences, and the promise that God made. The promises that God made as a result of Adam and Eve's disobedience. So last week, we ended our lesson with conjecture as to why Adam ate. There were many reasons. There were there have been many reasons given and some may say because he loved her others might say you know he was being a he-man a macho man and he didn't want to see her didn't want to see Eve uh, go about the punishment that was going to come come about all on her on her own so he wanted to share in her punishment the bottom line is this right here we do not know what went through his mind other than the fact that this right here he was not deceived like the woman. He was convinced. We know this because of what we read in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 14. What we do know is that he also chose to disobey God. He probably had the same argument put to him that by Eve that the serpent put to Eve in convincing, uh, in tricking her, if you will, he, uh, deceiving her. Eve was deceived because Satan, in the disguise of a serpent, seduced her. Adam, on the other hand, he was convinced. But the thing about his, his being convinced, he was convinced by someone he knew and someone he loved. 
and when it comes to sin today, we all can be found in this position where someone we know, someone we love, is help is giving us information and we are following it, which leads to sin. He may have thought that all was lost when we think about it, which is demonstrated by his weakness of faith, but also his lack of trust in God. Either way, the result of all of this, when it comes to Adam's part, he was disobedient to God, and therefore, he must endure the consequences of that disobedience as well. So, in review, there were five mistakes that we mentioned that Eve made. We see them on the board. She compromised with the rebel. She changed God's word. She considered the offer. She disobeyed or challenged the word of God. And she led Adam to sin. Note, note that Eve's five mistakes are a preview of the stages, if you will, we go through when we fall into sin because of disobedience or because of temptation, I should say. Stage number one, failure to rebuke sin when it appears. Sinfulness is usually attractive, is usually desirable, is usually powerful. And our lack of quick and decisive action at its first appearance is, when we think about it, is usually our downfall. Effective rebuke then requires the three things. It requires knowledge, it requires conviction, it requires immediate response. Knowledge of what? Knowledge that what is knowledge rather of what's truly good and evil. And the only place we get this is from God's word. Conviction of our own position, our rightness, if you will, and value of obeying God. And immediately response and that is recognizing and denouncing sin for what it is. What is sin? Sin. And we need to do that immediately. Stage two, compromise God's word. When we want to sin and still remain Christians, we simply attempt to change what the word of God says. With that said, quotation marks, just in case. Christian homosexuals, for example, have their own theologians, they have their own uh, commentaries, they have their own churches that support their lifestyle and shape their religion around it. If we want to continue our bad habits, we simply block out, or as some, as a gentleman said, I'm just going to disregard that part of the Bible because, disregard rather, that part of the Bible because I don't agree with it. Because I don't agree with it, I don't mean it's changed. It's like the brother was doing a lesson about speeding down in, uh, speeding in the Word of God as an illustration down in Kenai. And he said, okay, you're going down the road doing 70 miles an hour in a 20 mile an hour zone. And you say, well, there was no stop. There was no speed limit sign. You were still doing 70 miles an hour in a 20 mile zone. So that doesn't change it. So same thing in here. We can throw it out all we want to, but that's not going to change a thing. So what people will tend to do is they find a group of people who would actually agree with them and even join them and even share in the sin that they're committing. Number three, stage three, we consider the pleasures of sin. When 
when we do not rebuke sin immediately, we are more inclined to examine it. We're more inclined to experience it. It's like the salesman when you're going to buy a car and they say, take it out for a test drive. That's okay for the car. But take sin out for a test drive? That's not good. That's not good. Contemplating sin often leads to acting out sin. Number four, consent. If we do not initially re rebuke or refuse to sin, we will eventually give in to sin. The most the successful strategy then is this, to decide ahead of time, this is what I will do if faced with this temptation. This leaves no room for hesitation when, when tempted. We've already decided. This is an automatic response, an automatic reaction. It is a habit that is within us. We're going to reject temptation and move past it through right action. But not only right action, also prayer. This one right here, we start a club. We start a club. Once we have given in to temptation, the next step is usually to find a sympathetic partner who will let us sin in peace or join us in that sin. Paul mentions this phenomenon in Romans chapter 1 and verse 32. The Apostle Paul there says that eventually the state is that, or rather the eventual state is that sinners who know they are doing wrong what do they do? Encourage others to do wrong and even applaud them in their evil actions, thus justifying their own disobedience to the word of God. So in the first section of passage 2, and passage 2 is actually Genesis 3, 1 through 24, but last week and what we just finished covering is Genesis 3, 1 through 6. We find the reason for mankind and creation fall from grace, if you will, in their, how they ended up in their fallen state. What do we have? Adam and Eve disobeyed God's command and by exercising their free will in this matter have separated themselves from God. This separation from God then eventually, it, it resulted in death, is a direct and automatic result of disobedience or sin against God. The natural consequences of separation from God are decay, destruction, and the extinguishing of life, which would fully be destroyed during the time of Noah's flood, or the flood that took place in Noah's day, I should say. Separating a human being from God through sin will result in that person's eventual physical death and eternal, eternal separation from God eternal separation of man's spirit from God thankfully this is not the end of the passage nor is it the only thing that this passage teaches and reveals to us today we will review uh, verses 7 through 24 where it describes both the negative and positive ways that God responded to man's initial disobedience and in God's response God lays out for Adam and Eve and every generation that is to follow the natural consequences of man's disobedience as well as all of the important, the all-important promise, I should say, 
that not all was lost. And I asked this question last week. Is life worth living for mankind or for the Christian? God lays this out that yes, life is worth living for us. Because of Christ Jesus and the hope that we have in him, life is worth living. So in Genesis 3, 1 through 24, it introduces three key ideas that will establish, if you will, all that will be written afterwards. We started last week, we looked at key idea number one, the reason for mankind and the creation fallen state. In Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 6, the Bible describes how Eve succumbed to temptation and disobedience and rather disobeyed God's command to not eat of the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Thankfully, thankfully, not all is darkness. In Genesis 3, 7 through 24, we read that God makes a promise to destroy the source of sin and evil in the world. But before examining this promise, let us preview the consequences or of sin experienced by Adam and Eve. So here's a question I have for you. This is the only one, I think this is the only question I have as I remember. What would you say are the consequences we experience by our sin? What would you say are the consequences we experience by our sin? Now we can use that as a rhetorical question. And because I am going to cover this, so we're going to call it a rhetorical question. Genesis records, in sequence, the consequences and events that took place after the disobedience of Adam and Eve. Consequence number one, shame. Verse 7a. The eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. Now, this is one of those moments where our children say to us, duh. <laughs> really? <laughs> they just noticed? Uh, they knew from experience. They tasted the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. They had experienced good, and now they were experiencing evil. Their experience of evil began with the shame that come from knowingly disobeying God's word. Do you wonder why their nakedness was the focal point here of their disobedience, of their shame? Since nakedness would be of a sexual nature, but their sin wasn't? Well, one explanation is that they understood that as head of the human race, they had corrupted future generations by their sins. By their sin, I should say. Their reproductive organs, which symbolized the future of humanity, became a visual reminder of their sin and its consequences. Another idea is that they realized that they could not hide their sin, and their nakedness was a confirmation of all of this. Either way, the Bible says that they felt embarrassed and shame for having done wrong. Consequence number two, guilt. Verse 7b, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. 
the fact that they tried to cover themselves mean that they felt guilty. They knew that they had done wrong and they felt badly about it, which is probably what saved them because had they not felt bad about it, what could God have done? He could have destroyed them on the spot right then and there. Note, if you will, the inadequacy of trying to cover themselves. They covered themselves, but still experienced fear. Guilty people make great efforts at self-justification, which never succeeds, if you will, in covering the fear and shame that they feel for what they've done. When God covered Adam and Eve, they were no longer afraid, but they were still guilty. And they could function once again. Number three, fear. Verses eight through 10. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. You know, we don't know how long this interaction between God and Adam and Eve took place before this disobedience. But I would think it was long enough that there were times when they heard him walking through the garden, they were running to him. They were running to him to talk to him and converse with him. But because of this disobedience, they ran from him. Then the Lord God called to man and said to him, you might say that was a rhetorical question. <laughs> it wasn't so much, I don't know where you are, tell me. It was more, where are you? Do you realize what you have done? Do you realize at this point in time that you are now separated from me? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked, so I hid myself. Shame and guilt produce fear. Fear because a future man's conscience, that is where he will operate, is that man intuitively knows that sin begets punishment. God declares that disobedience brings death and knowledge of this primal spiritual law is part of man's psyche and we can read about this in Romans chapter 1 verses 30, uh, 28 through 32 the normal fellowship between Adam and God could not abide sin Adam knew God's will he knew God's will if you will concerning sin and consequently he was afraid of the judgment that he knew would come. He was not afraid because of his, his physical nakedness. He was afraid because his nakedness now reminded him of the sin that he committed. But it also reminded him of his consequences. And the consequence is death. The next consequence, more sin. Verses 11 through 13. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, <laughs> The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. 
Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Hmm. It does not take long for sin to multiply, if you will, right? Adam immediately began to show his signs of deterioration. When asked about the tree, instead of confessing and asking for forgiveness, what he does two things. First of all, he says, it was her fault. And then, God, it was your fault because you gave her to me. So instead of praising God for his goodness, he now blames God for his troubles. And when posed with the same question, Eve does not acknowledge guilt and ask for forgiveness. She blames the serpent and offers the excuse that she was deceived by him instead of acknowledging the fact that she had disobeyed God. Sin has already reduced them, if you will, to denying their own guilt and blinding them to God's goodness. This is seen in the fact that neither of them appealed to God for help. Now, I read this and I think it would have been neat if the serpent had been asked, what is this you have done? Because I would venture to say the serpent would have been like the scorpion that was on the frog's back that was crossing the lake. The scorpion couldn't swim, but the frog could. So the scorpion asked for a ride. The frog said, no, because you're going to sting me and we're going to both drown. The scorpion said, no, trust me. Halfway across, frog stroking away, the scorpion, zap! So as they're going down drowning, the frog lifted the scorpion and said, why did you do that? And the scorpion said, that's what I do. So I would venture if the serpent had been asked, since we know the serpent is Satan, if he had been asked, why did you do it? He would have said, that's what I do. That's what I do. I did what I do. The next consequence, judgment. The first thing they learn about evil is that it always results in judgment and punishment by God. God produces judgment in the same order that sin proceeded. Satan, Eve, and then Adam. So Satan is judged. Verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise, he shall bruise you on the heel, and you shall, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. The snake's posture Whatever it was before this event will now be that of one slithering in the dust, trampling on the foot by other animals. This is the imagery of Satan's position. Now think about Satan for a moment. This was once an angel. Now he will be hated. Now he will be feared. He will be repulsed, which I don't know about you guys, 
I see a snake, I don't care if it's green, I don't care if it got diamonds on its back, I don't care. Snake, kill. <laughs> and that's the way I think. I do not be trying to pick them up and pet them and go show them to nobody. I just, let's kill snake. That's the way I think. We get a glimpse of Satan's overall plan, if you will, when we hear the details of the curse that is put on him. God plays a special emphasis on, on Satan's inability from here forward to dominate woman and specifically the offspring she will bear, which was probably the reason, if you think about it, why he went, I'm going after Eve. I'm going after Eve. I get Adam later, but I'm going after Eve right now. God says that there will be war between this woman, her children, and Satan. And it's interesting to note that in the Bible, men have seed, not women, and spirit beings have no seed. Spirits do not procreate, only humans procreate. The seed of woman, if you will, is Christ Jesus, who was conceived without human intervention, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. We read this in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. The seed of Satan is the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist to whom Satan gives power and who will be destroyed by Christ Jesus in his coming. We see this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8. The bruising is a blow for the woman's seed. The blow would be on the heel, the inferior part of the body. This is Satan's attack that resulted in the human death, if you will, of Christ Jesus, but that was only temporary. For Satan's seed, the blow would be on the head the superior part of the body and thus it would be fatal Jesus when he returns destroys death and will pronounce judgment on Satan who will be thrown into the pit forever we see this in, Roman, in uh, Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10 and this is the promise next Eve is judged verse 16 to the woman he said I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth in pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. When we think about Adam and Eve and the initial, when they first came on board, they were painlessly brought into a perfect and sinless world. But because of this sin, the creating of future society would be marked by pain. Because of their sin, death entered the world, and pain and childbirth will become the constant reminder of this fact. Before sin, man and woman enjoyed co-rulership over creation. But because of sin, the perfect balance was upset, and God established a rule of law in the area of family leadership where the husband would rule and be the head of the family unit. This concept is repeated and confirmed in the New Testament in 1 Thessalonians 11 and verse 3, as well as Ephesians 5, uh, verses 25 and 22 through, uh, rather 22 through 24. 
Now, there have been many abuses of this situation, make no mistake about it, but the Bible clarifies this loving relationship that is to exist in this union called marriage. Ephesians 5, verse 25, that's what it is, and 28 through 30. There is also mercy, when you think about it, in God's judgment over Eve. She will not desire the serpent and his promises, but her loyalty will now be to her husband. Also, the pain of childbirth would not overcome her love for her husband and for her family. And there will be a limit to her suffering. Next, Adam is judged. Verse 16. Uh, verse 17 and 19. I forgot to switch slides. There we go. Verse 17. Then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. First, God outlines the sin, right? Adam listened to his wife, and he changed his allegiance. He changed his allegiance from God's word to her. Loyalty to the word, to God's word, is to be stronger than any human tie, even that of marriage. Eve did not deceive Adam. We talked about that last week and talked about it today. She did not deceive him. She convinced him. Basically, what harm could it be? You only have to do it once. I did it. I didn't get zapped. Nothing happened. But in the end, in the end, the plain truth is that Adam did what God told him not to do. God then produces the judgment on Adam, or pronounces the judgment on Adam, I should say. Since he is the head of the race, the judgment, by extension, will affect all of his descendants. Because of what Adam has done, God must now remove himself from the physical spear, and this will affect mankind. See, God is holy. God is sinless. And God cannot dwell where there is sin and immorality. Until Adam and Eve sinned, God maintained the balance for life in the physical world by his presence. Adam and Eve lived in a perfect world where God maintained this perfection through his power. Think about it. There was no deterioration, no overpopulation, no imbalances. But once sin entered the world, God removed his presence and thus permitted the cycle of deterioration to take place. This was the reality of good and evil. And God had warned against it. The deterioration, not permitted before, was now released. Mutations that caused decay began to form. Even in man, the cycle of deterioration would now cause his physical death. Remember, all of this took place 
before the great flood. So the rate of decay and imbalance was slow. And this explains why people live such long lives during that time. Once the flood destroyed the world, man's lifespan shortened and the rate of decay accelerated because the creation was further weakened and compromised by this worldwide catastrophe. Genesis, Genesis explains the symptoms and features of a declining world where God was no longer extending, if you will, his power to maintain a steady state of life and order, thus allowing all things to gradually disintegrate toward disorder and death. God did not create death. He did not create death. What God did was merely remove his life-sustaining power and allow creation, his creation, to disintegrate which is what it would naturally do without the original life force that gave it existence in the first place. So instead of all things being made, organized into complex systems as they were during that creation week, they are now being unmade. They are becoming disorganized. They are becoming simple. And this is what is wrong with our world and the reason for its deterioration. So getting back to the passage and its language, we, we saw the phrase, cursed is the ground. This is the reverse. Remember when all of this was created, what came from God's mouth was, it is very good. The difference here is that God no longer maintains it. The curse is that God now removes his sustaining power. Another phrase, for thy sake, refers to God's mercy. God removes his sustaining power, but only as a response to sin, but also to put a limit on the wickedness resulting from sin. Think about it like this. With this deterioration coming about and man dying, better suffering and death accompanies sin an unchecked rebellion and a never-ending multiplication of wicked people using the creation for sinful purposes. Once sin was in, God had to intervene. Let's think about it for a moment. Okay, I ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now I already knew good. Now I know evil. Eve. What's that tree over there called? life? Beeline to the tree of life. <laughs> Think about it. Beeline to the tree of life. If God doesn't intervene, man thinks like that. The curse on the earth is followed by the result that it would, the result that it would have on man, if you say, let's say it that way. Sorrow, first of all. Continual disappointment and futility in life, especially in providing for oneself. Pain and suffering symbolized by the terms thorn and thistles. Hard work. Before, man freely ate of <laughs> the abundance in the garden. Now they would have to stretch out a living from an uncooperative earth. Death. With all of his work and effort, man would, like the rest of creation, deteriorate 
into the primary elements from which he was taken, the earth itself. This was the result of the curse on Adam. Now it's interesting here to note that Jesus experienced every one of these elements when, as the Bible says, he bore the curse on our behalf. We see that in Galatians 3 verse 13. But what else did we see? It's a man of sorrow. We see in Isaiah 53, 3, crown of thorns that was worn on his head. Mark uh, 15, 17, the labor uh, which caused him to, to uh, sweat. And his sweat was like drops of blood, as we see in uh, Luke 22:44. And death, and death, finally, God brought him to the dust of death, as we see at Psalm 22:15. God placed a curse on the earth by withdrawing himself from mankind and thus allowing the world and man to disintegrate into death. However, he did not leave the world without hope. That hope was that one day he would create a new heaven and a new earth which would never be destroyed by sin and where he would dwell eternally with his people. Now that the judgment was pronounced, there was a response from Adam and Eve. Verse 20. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Adam renames his wife. Originally her name was woman. This term signified that she was part of him, equal and giver. It signified that they were going to obey God multiply, yield the earth and subdue it. What were they waiting on? This result also showed that they believed God's promise to bring salvation. So by bearing children despite pain, woman was expressed verbally to save. So God renews his relationship with man, not, not based on perfection. He renews his relationship with man based on faith. Because they believed God's promise and expressed that faith their intention to procreate and In response to their faith expressed in Jesus, God provides a covering for their shame that built in their nakedness. The word says at verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve and clothed them. Animals were sacrificed. How do we know animals were sacrificed? They weren't skinned. God made clothes. He said, go ahead, now go ahead. Those animals those animals were sacrificed God This is the first preview, if you will, how redemption. 
God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life. by sin, and although he's repentant and saved, he can still be tempted to continue to his life. The result being that he will continue to exist in sin state forever. Perhaps this is what Satan did why there was no salvation for him. But verses 23 and 24, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the land from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. The word is suggests that Adam didn't want to leave. <laughs> he did not want to leave, so God had to force him out. And in doing so, he did two things. First, he drives the man and his wife out of the garden to their new home, their new work, and their new status. Second, he positions the angels there so that they cannot approach this tree again. And it kind of tells us something here. The tree is preserved for a future time. The sword here signifies that you cannot access the tree without first experiencing physical death. So then, the remaining story of the Bible will describe how God worked, if you will, in order to bring man to reach out and eat of the tree of life. Revelation 2.